Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. One of the things that energizes our teams the most is being able to hear stories of lives that are impacted by this ministry. We would love for you to share your story with us by emailing it to stories at newcommunity.co or maybe your next step to getting connected to what God is doing in this ministry is partnering with us financially. You can do that online at www.newcommunity.co or through the PushPay app and find the giving option that works best for you. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? It's good to see each of you here. And if you're our guest, once again, we want to welcome you and say thanks for worshiping with us this morning. If you're watching online for the first time, thank you so much for joining in to the message today. My name is Aaron, and I am the lead pastor here at NCC. And once again, we're so glad that you're with us. We are in our last week of this series called The End is Near. And we've been taking the past few weeks and just looking at what God's word says about this. And I want to tell you, I have absolutely loved this series. Um, just the studying that I've gotten to do and all throughout the week, I've done what I've been asking you guys to do and to set aside what I've heard from Hollywood, to set aside what I've read in books, to set aside even what I've heard other people talk about. And just once again, go to scripture, go to God's word and see what he's speaking about, how all of this unfolds, about how his plan of salvation unfolds um, as we approach the end. And so it's been a great series. And every week as we've approached the book of Revelation, that's the last book in the Bible, every week as we've done this, we've reminded ourselves of a few things. And so if you're taking notes, and once again, I want to encourage you to do that today and write down some of the references. These are the four things that we want to remember as we walk through the book of Revelation, okay? So some of these, if you've been here, we've gone through these, but this book is for everyone. That's the first thing that we've said, okay? So Revelation, if you've ever heard someone say, don't read that book, it's confusing, you're not going to understand it. No, this is a book that God has written for everyone. So it's not just for the academic scholar, it's not for the religious elite, it's not for that person that's been going to church for a long time. This is for every one of us. God is speaking to us about what he's doing and how his plan of salvation is unfolding. The second thing we've said is this is a book of prophecy, okay? And so what God is revealing, there's imagery here, there's symbolism that is used to show what is taking place. And so John, the author, the writer of this book, is writing about a real place at real time, and much of what he's talking about is really going on. The people that are reading this, they're facing this. But it's also speaking to what is to come. And Jesus says that at the beginning of this book in Revelation. He says, write down what is and what you've seen and what is yet to come. And so this is a book that's talking about how this is going to unfold. The third thing that we've said is this book is written to build our faith, not build fear, okay? So God did not write this book to scare you. That's not his goal, okay? He's not just trying to make you afraid and, and so that eventually like you'll turn to him. That's not his goal here. He's writing this to build our faith. Once again, for us to understand what it is that Christ is doing in God's plan of salvation for our life. And the fourth thing that we've said is, this book right here, Revelation, it's a story of Christ. It's not a book about the Antichrist, okay? This is not a book about wars that will take place or Armageddon. That's not the purpose of this book. This is a revelation. That's what John is having, a revelation of who Jesus is and what it is that God is doing. And so these are four things that we want to remember as we're looking at this book that we want to carry with us today as we examine this. And in case you've missed any of these weeks, I'm going to take us through this timeline again that we've talked about 
in what we've um, said the past few weeks. So I can't go into a lot of detail. So if you've missed one of these weeks, I want to encourage you, go online, listen to the podcast, watch the video, and you can see a little bit more detail. But I'll just kind of give us a quick picture. Once again, this is about an individual named John. John was one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 guys that followed Jesus while he was here on the earth um, and, and followed him in his public ministry for about three and a half years. So he knew Jesus well. This is written around 90 AD, so about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And John is on this island called Patmos. And it's this Roman prison. There's not a physical structure there. They just threw you on the island and you're stuck there, okay? So you're in prison there. And that's where John is writing this from. There's an oppression of the Roman Empire. And that's some of the imagery that we get throughout this book. We started the first week at looking at these seven letters that are written to seven influential churches at the time that John is writing this. And we couldn't go through all seven. And so we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus where God reminds them, love well. Love well, love the people around you. Show the love that I have shown to you to others. And then the last letter to the church in Laodicea where he reminds them, don't rely on your wealth. Don't just rely on your wisdom, but trust me. Come into this relationship with me and don't allow your, your love for me to grow lukewarm. It's kind of the imagery that he gives us. And then the second week, we talked about Jesus and how he stands out. John has this vision of Jesus. He stands out among every other religious leader, among every other person that has ever lived. And he was the only person that was able to unroll the scroll and unveil what it is that God is doing, his plan as the end of time comes near. And so we talked about that, keeping our focus on Christ. And how the enemy, this dragon, this imagery that we got is Satan, it's the devil, and how he has had the same plan all throughout history. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's going to use government leaders, government systems. That was the image of the beast coming out. He's going to use all of these things. He's going to use political figures, the Antichrist. He's done it all throughout history. He's going to keep on doing it as this thing ends to distract you and I from what it is that Christ is doing and to turn our hearts away from God and to turn them towards the enemy and his plan. And so we talked about that, keep your focus on Christ. And then last week, we talked about these angels that are declaring an eternal gospel. This is good news that Christ is calling everyone to himself and the, the evil in this world, the systems, Babylon, if you will, this imagery of this city falling is evil and the wrong in the world that will collapse because the love of God will win over. And then we talked about how the love of God demands justice. And that you and I have a chance to either accept or reject the gift of God. And we ended last week with Christ coming back and defeating the armies of this world and reigning on this earth for a thousand years. So we're going to pick up today in the book of Revelation, kind of where we left, left off last week, right there. And so if you have your Bible, turn this morning to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to start reading at verse 10. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you, or maybe one or two seats over. And um, you can get one of those or have someone hand one to you. And you can turn to page 602, and that's towards the very end. So you can just start close to the end there, and, and then just flip back. It's the last few pages there in that Bible in the seat in front of you. And once again, we just ended, Christ is reigning here on the earth. Sin has been defeated. Evil has been defeated. The beast this imagery that we have in the Antichrist, they've been thrown into this lake of fire. And we pick up where John is talking about in Revelations chapter 20, verse 10. And this is what it says. And the devil, this dragon that he's been talking about, who had deceived all of the world was thrown into the lake of fire 
and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And then John says, and then I saw a great white throne and he who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place for them was found. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it, death and Hades, that's hell, gave up the dead and those who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what's going on here? What is it that John was seeing? He has this image. Satan has been destroyed. He's been thrown into the lake of fire. And then death and hell itself gives up the dead. And they're standing there in front of this judgment, in front of the last judgment of God, okay? And I want to be clear here as we've kind of walked through different parts of the book is this is not a judgment for those who believe in God, whose names are written in the book of life, who have accepted the gift of God's salvation. These, this is a judgment for those that have rejected him. And I remember growing up and I heard pastors talk about this and they would read this passage and then they would say things like, and Stalin will be there and Hitler would be there. And they'd give you these ideas of people that they thought were really bad that were gonna be there on this judgment day. And I wanna tell you, people will not be here because they're bad. Okay, you gotta get this church. You're not standing, if you're finding yourself standing, you're not here because you were good enough or because you were bad enough or because of the wrong things that you were done. You're here because you rejected Christ. And if it was just based on our goodness and our badness, all of us would be there because we're all jacked up. We're all messed up, okay? We all deserve the judgment of God. That's what our sin gives us, right? And if you don't find yourself here, it's not because you did enough good stuff. It's simply because God's grace, you accepted the gift of his son, his salvation over your life. And the people that are standing there, they had not accepted that. They rejected the gift of God. And we're gonna talk about this. So we can't comment on who the great and small are. We may think, of course, that person's going to be there. And John was probably surprised thinking that guy's going to be there and he wasn't there. And then there's probably people that we think, yes, they're definitely, they're going to be in heaven. But if they've not accepted the gift of God, it's not how good you are, you guys. It's simply God's grace. And those that rejected it, they will find themselves here on this day. And so I remember reading this, first coming back to Christ um, in, in my high school years and in my early 20s, and I was studying this again, and I had this picture of hell, and I read this, and it was really confusing because if you caught this, it says hell, or Hades as it's translating it, is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And I thought, wait, I thought hell was the lake of fire. Like, what's going on? Like, how does God take the lake of fire and throw it in? It's like, what's going on here and so I had to start to look, God, what is this idea that we have of hell? And can I tell you, a lot of us have some messed up ideas about hell, right? And we get this image of what we've seen on cartoons that there's these little flames kind of shooting out of the ground. There's a fat devil there, a red guy with a pitchfork, and he's poking people in the butt. And that's our image of hell, right? Like that it's going to be that kind of place. And, and that's what we think of, but that's not the imagery that we get in the Bible. And so as we read through scripture, what is this idea of hell and even of the lake of fire that we're given. And for that, we have to go back to 2 Kings chapter 23. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but please write that down. Or if you want to go there, you can kind of see what I'm talking about, but you can look at it later. 
And what's taking place in 2 Kings chapter 23 is that there were um, a father and a son. Both of them were kings at different times, one right after the other. And they were supposed to be leading the people of God, but they led them astray. And right outside of the city of Jerusalem, Ammon and Manasseh, these two kings, built a statue to a false god. And in this valley, the valley of Himnon, in this valley right outside of Jerusalem, the place where the city of God, the temple of God, the presence of God dwells, they have the audacity to set up a false idol. And this idol that stood in this valley where people would come and worship, and these kings were challenging the people to come and worship, it was an idol that stood with arms extended like this. So if you could imagine a statue like that. And the kings were telling the people of God, God's mad at you. He's angry. He's disappointed in you. God hates you. And you've got to do something to appease the gods. And so what they thought we have to do is we have to sacrifice something. We have to give something that's dear to us, and that'll make God love us. And so what they did is they lit a fire underneath the statue, the statue of Molech. And this open flames going, and the flame began to heat up the statue. And then one by one, they would take their firstborn, a little baby, a little toddler, and they would lay them on that statue. And it was said in the valley of Himnon that the screams never ceased, that you could hear for miles children wailing as they were being burned alive. And I'm not trying to be graphic, I'm so sorry, but this is the imagery that we have. It was called Gehenna. And the seven times that Jesus talks about hell or this place of torment, that's the word that he uses, Gehenna. The reality of this place, and just so we're not confused, God says in the book of Jeremiah, you went out and you prostituted yourself. You gave yourself to false idols. You worshiped the Baals and you worshiped the statues of Molech and you gave up your children on those altars. And that is something that never entered my mind. It's something that I never asked of you. It was a deplorable thought to God. He could not even imagine that people would do this in somehow worshiping God or honoring who he was. He said, that's not for me. That has nothing to do with who I am. Don't mistake that that's what I want. He's very clear with his people, but they begin to sacrifice. And so this became a place of torment. And during the time of Jesus, because no one wanted anything to do with that, it became a garbage refuge. It became a landfill outside of the city of Jerusalem where they dump all of the trash, all of the waste, everything would go to Gehenna. And this is the imagery that Jesus gives us. You want a picture of what hell will be like? You want a picture of what this lake of fire will be? That's what it'll be like. That's the imagery that he gives us. In Luke chapter 16, there's another picture that Jesus gives us of this torment. And I don't have time to go into the whole story, but there's a rich man and there's Lazarus and both of them find themselves dead and in eternity. And one is with God, the, the poor man, Lazarus, who's covered with all of these boils. He, he's now with God. And the rich man who ignored everyone around him, who didn't take care of his fellow man, who didn't love others, he finds himself in hell. And now he's crying out in torment saying, man, can Lazarus come? Can he do something just to alleviate this suffering that I'm going through, this pain that I'm going through? This is the picture that we get. And it's become really popular. You can turn on Christian television stations. You can turn on different spiritual channels or religious channels. And even Christian leaders are saying, no, this is just a metaphor that God is giving. No, it's not church. It's a reality that we find in the book of Revelation. And Jesus says, you need to have a proper perspective of this. You want to know what it's going to be like. It's going to be a place of eternal torment and screaming. 
And I've heard people say, well, that's where I want to go, right? Like, I want to go to hell because it's going to be the party place. And, and we're imagining that there's going to be alcohol there and drugs. And this is just going to be the place where all of the, the cool people are hanging out. But that's not the picture that we get in God's word. See, God's word describes it as a place of utter darkness. I wanted to do this this morning, but I thought it may freak people out and just like all of a sudden just take down all of the lights, but we're not going to do that. I realize there's kids in here, okay, and it may cause screaming, but that's what God's word talks about, that place. I don't know if you've ever been there, but where you can place your hand right in front of your face and you can't see the lines on it. You can't even make out the shape. See, you're not going to be there with your friends. I'm not, anyone that finds themselves, we're not there with our friends hanging out. We're there in a place where we can't even see what's right in front of us. All as we can hear is the unceasing torment, the screams, the agony that is going on all around us. I was talking with my son Micah about this, and he said, Dad, I'd never thought about this, but he said, it's got to be a, like a fire that we've never experienced because every fire here on earth burns itself out, right? It eventually dies down, but that fire is never extinguished. See, it's something we can't even imagine, you guys. And God says this is, this is where people will end up apart from him, apart from who he is. This place of, of utter darkness, this place of agony. And can I tell you the worst part of hell isn't anything that I've described so far. God's word says in the book of James that every good and perfect gift is coming down from your heavenly father. Every good thing that you've ever experienced in your life, do you realize that that comes from God? That that is a gift from God to us? If you've ever been outside on a really hot day and you've jumped into a pool that's cool and refreshing, or you've taken a glass, some kind of drink of water, or iced tea or something that's really, that moment that you feel that pleasure, that's from God. If you've ever experienced a cool breeze on a hot, that, that pleasure, that comes from God. If you've ever experienced joy and someone sold you a funny joke, or you've seen a little kid or a little baby and you've held them in your arms and you just start to laugh, that moment of joy, that moment of pleasure there, just that utter sheer laughter and joy and happiness that comes, that comes from God. See, I would tell you that even the most diehard atheist has not lived one moment of their life without experiencing the goodness and the mercy of God. It is all around us, church. It's everywhere. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from your heavenly father. Every good thing that you and I have ever had, it is from God. And I don't even have the words to describe a place where God's presence isn't found, where there is no comfort, you guys, where there is no joy, there's no moments reprieve. There's no cool refreshment that can come in this moment, in this place. Why? Because God's presence is absence here. It's separated from who God is. It's everlasting separation from God. And, and there is no moment. The worst part of hell is not the fire. And it's not the agony. It's not the screams that you hear all around you. It's not even that torment that you're going through. It's that God's presence is nowhere to be found there. There is no goodness there. And that's the reality. That's what John is trying to help his readers understand that left to ourselves, that's where we are at. And so you may be reading this. You may be hearing that. The reality may be setting in. Wait, you're talking about everlasting torment. How can a God of love, how can what we've read all throughout the Bible that this God of love, how can he condemn people there? And to that, I would say, I don't believe he does. I really don't believe that God will condemn people to hell. As I read throughout the scripture, as we've walked through God's word, 
What I see is this picture of a God that loves us, that's pursuing us, that all the way since the beginning, he's been trying to restore his relationship with mankind. We read even what we talked about last week, 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish. John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that through me all of the world might be saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. The story of the Bible is not a story of a God who's angry of a God who's waiting to punish you, of a God who's mad. This is the story of a God who did everything that he could, who wrapped himself up in flesh and gave himself for mankind that no one would have to spend eternity separated from him. This is a God of love. So how does one end up in hell? How does someone find themselves in hell? It's not because God's condemned in there. It's because we choose that's where we want to be. I truly believe this at the end. It's not going to be saying, God, saying, I'm mad at you. I'm going to punish you. You're going to end up in hell. It's us saying, no, that's where I want to be. Let me give you a small story of this. Um, yesterday, we, on Saturday mornings, we have ESCA family chores, okay? It's, it's what we do. The kids try to sleep in. They don't like Saturday mornings, but it's just part of what we have to do. And so we got up yesterday and started doing chores and one of our little guys, I'm not going to mention his name because this is kind of an embarrassing story. Um, he was really frustrated, right? Like he did not appreciate getting up early on Saturday morning and doing chores. And so after we had worked for a few hours and we'd done laundry and cleaned rooms and all of this kind of stuff, I thought, I'm going to do something nice for him. And so I got down our Wii U, like the game system, and I got out Wii Resort and like I'd set it up and everything. And I was getting ready. I said, hey, let's play this together. It'll be fun. Let's just do this together and hang out for a little bit. We've worked together, and he was not having it, you guys. He was over on the chair, arms folded, like tossing the Wii remote down, like he was just frustrated in that moment. He did not want to be around me, and I was sensing this. And so I look at him, and I say, hey, if you don't want to hang out, like we don't have to hang out together. Like, I'm trying to do something nice here. And so I get the Wii stuff, I pack it all up, I put it away, and I said, I'm not going to force you to hang out with me. And later, just after everything kind of cooled down, I went up to him. I want to say his name. I don't say his name. And so I, I said, hey, buddy. I said, hey, can I tell you something? A little bit ago, I really wanted to be around you. And I know you probably don't think of this, but you hurt your dad's feelings. Like, I know I'm a man, but that actually hurt my feelings. It really hurt when you acted like that, when you said basically, like, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. And so I just said, I, I need you to know that, that that hurt me. Um, I love you. I wanted to be around you. I want to do fun stuff. Like, I just want you to know that. And so we high-fived, we hugged, we prayed together. Like, we're good now, so, so we're okay now. But, but in that moment, as all of that unfolded, I thought, you know what? That's what many of us will do in our lifetime. That's the picture of us and God. And God, in that same way, he's loving. Church, he's not going to force himself on us. He's not. He's done everything to restore his relationship with mankind. But some of us in our life and some people that you know, and we've all been there at one point, okay? Even if we've received God's salvation, at one point we were like this. We told God through our actions, if not through our words, but some of us through our words, I don't want you to be a part of my life. And God, I don't want anything to do with you. And we lived our own way and we told God, I understand your design and I know what your word says, but I don't want that in my life. And so I'm going to go do my own thing, God. And we've told God day after day, month after month, year after year, I've got this on my own. You can go do your own thing. I don't want your love. And I don't want you to be a part of my life. 
And I don't want anything to do with you, God. I'm gonna, I've got this figured out, and I'm going to do this on my own. And after having said that to God over and over, and God pleading with us, and God inviting us, and God reminding us, and God giving us good gifts every day, the refreshment, everything that we experience, the goodness of God, we're still looking at God saying, nope, I don't want to be with you. And I think ultimately, in the end, God will look at us and say, if that's what you want, that's really what you desire, you want to spend eternity away from me, I'll grant your request. Not going to force you to be with me. Not going to force my love to be upon you. You're not a robot. You're not a puppet. God's extending it, but we have to receive it. And ultimately, if we've lived our life in such a way that says, God, I've got this figured out on my own and I don't need you, God's going to say, okay, if that's the way that you want it, that's really what you want. Church, if we find ourselves in this place of judgment, it's because We chose to be there. And I truly believe that God will open those books and that'll show us, yep, right here, this moment, this day, time and time again, I kept on calling to you and you chose to ignore my voice. You chose to tell me you don't want to be near me. And if that's what you want, then I'm not gonna force my love upon you. See, we'll find ourselves in this place, in this judgment seat, because that's where we chose to be, church. We've chosen to reject the love of God, the gift of God, the grace of God. You will not be here because you were good. You will not be here because you were bad. You and I, if we find ourselves here, it's because we've rejected the love of Christ. And we've said, no, God, I want to do this on my own. In church, hell is a reality. What John is talking about, this revelation here of people that have lived their life in that way, it's a reality. Don't believe the lies that says, no, this is a metaphor. This is just some analogy. No, this is the truth of what God is saying. If that's how you want to spend your life, ultimately, that's how you will spend your life. Eternity separated from the God who loved you, from the God who pursued you. But Revelation doesn't end there. It talks about what will happen if we reject, but what happens to those who have accepted God's gift? What takes place in that? And John begins to describe what heaven is like. And can I be honest with you, church? We have as many messed up and screwed up ideas about heaven as we do of hell. Like just talking with people, and you probably experience this, we think it's some kind of cloud city, right? Like on that final movie of Star Wars, right, where they're kind of up in space. Some of you guys, you probably think, well, you turn into a baby, and you wear a diaper, and you got this little harp, right? And you're just up there in the clouds playing music, and that's what happens. I've talked with some individuals, and you think, well, I get a mansion, right? Like, I am so sick of my apartment or this tiny house that I live in. And that's what heaven is. I get a bigger home. I get all of these rooms and I get to hang out with my friends and my family. And are they going to live with, like, what's going on? So we have all of these questions about what's going on in this misunderstanding of what heaven is actually like. And once again, I want us to look at this because before John starts describing the physical aspect of heaven, he tells us about what heaven is really like. And this is what it says If you have your Bibles, Revelations chapter 21, verse 3, Revelations 21, 3. And John says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. What is the picture that John gives us of heaven? What is it that he tells us about it? What's the first thing that he says before he gives any physical description? What is it that makes heaven heaven? If you're wondering that, it is Jesus. It's Jesus, you guys. That's what makes heaven. Before he talks about these pearly gates or all of these jewels on the road, before he talks about a river or a tree or any of that, all of these things that we've heard about heaven, before he mentions any of that, he says, you want to know what makes heaven heaven? Do you want to know what's going to make this place so awesome? It's that Jesus is there and that God, because of our sin, having broken our relationship and we're physically separated from him for the first time, all of humanity together, we will be restored back to Christ. We'll be with him that we'll be together with him, that the tabernacle of God will now dwell with mankind. What makes heaven heaven? It is Jesus. And I'm just telling you, church, if you're there in that moment and you're looking for some mansion, you're gonna be disappointed. And if you're there in that moment and you think it's about some crown and you're like, I've always just had a small bank account, but then I'm gonna have some gold and some jewels on my crown and finally I'll have, you're gonna be disappointed because the power of heaven It's who Christ is. It's what this thing has been about all along from page, from the first page of the Bible to the last page. This is the story of God pursuing us, of a God who loves us, of a God who wants to be close to us. That's what this thing has been about all along. It's that we finally get to be with him, that we get to be close to the God who loves us and to the God who created us. That's what heaven is about. That's the picture that we get of heaven. That's the most important thing. In church, we spend all of our lives struggling and wrestling with this idea. And if you're anything like me, I have days where I get up and I just feel like crap. And I'm like, God, I don't know if you love me today. And I'm messed up, God. And I'm broken. And God, maybe you're mad at me because I've made bad decisions, God, or or there's temptation, whatever it is in my life, God, those things. And I feel bad, but that's not the story that we get in the Bible. See, church, you got to get this. The beauty of heaven is that he's loved you all along. He's pursued you. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. God looks at you, and he is proud to call you his son. He's proud to call you his daughter. He looks at you, and the very sight of you brings joy to his heart. It brings happiness to who he is. He loves the idea, and it's what he's been longing for all along, is that he could be close to you, that he could restore all things, that all things would be made new, and death itself would end, so that he could be close to humanity. That's the beauty of heaven. You guys, that's what we get. That's the reward at the end of all of this. It's not some building. It's not some mansion. It's not just some amazing food, although I hope that's there, but that it's that Jesus. We're with him, you guys. At the end of all of this, he's the one that I've been looking for. He's the one that my heart has been searching for. He's the one that I've been longing for. And that's why heaven, it's just a continuation of what we've done here on earth, you guys. And heaven's not some place that we go off to. If you've imagined somewhere out there beyond the stars that that's where heaven is, that's not what John talks about. Revelations chapter 21, the end of this chapter, he describes a new Jerusalem, something coming down. Now he's saying the city of God is, is dwelling with men. And now There's no need for the stars or for the sun or for the moon or any of that because the glory of God himself fills the city. His presence is everywhere, you guys. There will not be anywhere in that city where we go where God's manifest presence is not right there with us. 
the joy of this, of, of what we see. You start all the way back in the garden and, and we were exiled. We ate of the fruit that we were not meant to eat of. And in the book of Revelations, at the end of it all, God offers us the fruit of life. It's healing for the nations. It never runs out is what the book of Revelation says. God's presence, God's healing, God's wholeness is there. Do you understand he's made all things new? What makes heaven heaven? It's that God is there, that he's dwelling with us, you guys, that he's close to us. And as John finishes all of this out, as he gets to the end of this revelation that he has, he wants us to have that reality that left to ourselves, we can choose to not be with God, you guys. We can spend eternity separated from who he is, separated from his goodness and from his love. We can choose to reject his love. And ultimately, if that's how we want to spend our lives, that's how we'll spend our life for all eternity. Or we can choose to accept the gift of God and to be with him, which is the real prize, you guys, to spend eternity with him, to be with Jesus, to be with this God who's loved us and who's pursued us. And John, in Revelation chapter 22, he just ends this book by saying that, that God's spirit inside of us, it cries out, Lord, come. God, we want to see all of this, everything, God, your plan of salvation, your redemption, God, what you're doing with mankind, God, we want to see this come to pass, God, we trust you. And today, before we pray, I want to hit just two more questions. We've done this every single week where we've looked at these different questions that you guys have texted in. And so let me give these two questions that came in and where we find these out in the Bible. The first question is this right here. What happens to those who never heard of Jesus? So if you don't have a chance to reject him because you've never heard of him, what happens? Or maybe to those, someone asked this question, who struggle with mental issues, maybe a mental limitation, and they can't understand the idea of sin or who God is or the salvation of Christ. Um, And so let me just start before I even go to scripture. Let me just say this. Church, I truly believe that the grace of God is more than we can understand. I believe that. I mean, if it was left up to you and me, I mean, we'd we'd lower the ax, right? We'd bring judgment, right? Like we, we would do that. And God's grace is so patient with us. I know that he has a plan for those that fall into these. And I think in Romans chapter two, verse 17 through 29, We see a small picture of this, maybe a reflection of this, where Paul is talking to those who did not have the law and that they are actually a law unto themselves. And he says that it's actually the creation of God, that it's everything around us, that those who are left without a witness or maybe like we think of who Jesus actually is, that God's creation in and of itself is a reflection. It's a declaration of who God is. And when they stand before Christ, when they stand before the judgment of God, they will answer according to what they did know. And did they call out to him? They may have not known his name, but did they call out to him and did they listen to his voice? Because Roman tells us that no one's left without a witness. No one's left without an answer of who God is if we're truly seeking after him. And so I believe that. I believe for people that didn't have the mental capacity that we're dealing with mental limitations in that same way, that the grace of God will cover them and that God will ask them to answer for what they did know and what they could understand. And Romans kind of alludes to this idea in Romans chapter two. The next question that came in was this, will we know each other in heaven? Like, will we know who, who we are? Like, who's my dad or who my brother was? Or will my kids know who I am? And and I truly believe that we will. 
And this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul was talking about this idea when love is brought to completion, and we know that won't happen here on this earth, and so we believe that he's speaking about some future time or some other point, and he says this in that passage. He says, then I will be known even as I am known. And so I think, hey, that alludes to this idea. We see it in the physical person of Jesus in John chapter 20. He steps into the room with the disciples and they can recognize him. And he says, hey, look, there's holes in my hand. You can come put your fingers in there. Come put your hand in my side. This is really me. It's who I am. And so although his body was glorified, it was changed. This was a resurrected body that we've talked about last week. You know, we talked about that. But even though in that, they could know who Jesus was. And I believe that. I believe that we'll know who each other, that we'll know who, who we are. Now, let me say this, because I think we have this wrong mindset is it's not going to be like, okay, I know my family and I just want to hang out with them. And all of you guys, you're kind of weird. Okay. And, and I don't really want to spend all eternity with you, but I'm kind of stuck here with you. Right. So it's not going to be like that. Like you're going to be like, well, I prefer these people at that point. Love will have been perfected. And I know it's so hard for us to understand, but these deep, intimate, these enriching friendships that we have, these relationships that we have here on earth that are so meaningful and so powerful, we'll have that with everyone. And it won't just be one person. It won't just be a couple of people. It won't just be your close family. It will literally be with everyone. You'll want to spend eternity with everyone that is there because of the love of God that has been perfected in us. And so although I believe we'll know each other like we are known here and we'll know that about each other, we're not going to be limited in relationships like we are limited here on this earth and in the context that we know those relationships here on earth.